by the way, purity and impurity is characteristic of most human religion, some system like that. And um, modern Christianity is actually a deviation from that because they don't. Ancient Christianity did have some purity and impurity. I think we have well, an we inscription. Do. We do now, but it's But often, it's individual. Or maybe you were saying it's individual. It's very individual. It's often very much focused on women. The Nazarenes do, Janelle? What are you yeah. talking about? Yeah, but it's also there. It is connected to sin or moral oh, issues, right? Yeah. It's and, not as, is, it's not menstruation. Are there any laws about menstruation? No, because we wouldn't say that word because, oh my gosh. But <laughs> What's, Yeah, it's funny. But you could use the word, you is, say the word vagina it and is people about, freak out. But it is about sex and bo- I mean, sex and bodies, especially for women, mm-hmm. um, becomes very much part of that. But I, I mean, yeah, I do come from a Methodist tradition, mm-hmm. Nazarenes, where uh, being entirely sanctified is all about that's right. There's personal sanctification piety and perfection. That's and, right. and having this be uh, very different from what you were talking about in that it was it was expected all of the time. Like you uh-huh. are to be pure right. in everything all the time. Now, some some scholars would argue that's a very American holiness interpretation yeah. of what Wesley was saying. But in practice, I think that that's what we see in more places is this emphasis on living perfectly all the time and that that there might be a special space for that to be lived out like on on sabbath no i mean it needs to be all the time and everything um you so know, i i find that so interesting here's another major difference with jews and judaism god does or jews don't think god is by your side all the time okay god at times in the bible uh in in lamentations in the psalms how many times do you read where are you, God? Why have you abandoned mm-hmm. me? Why have you? And so there's got times when Jews don't feel the presence of God and they acknowledge that. So I, I know there's this hymn, because I heard it once in a church of um, Jesus walks with me in the garden or some, mm-hmm. something like that. Jesus is by my side. Th- yep. This kind of notion. Um, uh, Judaism just doesn't see God as that friendly. You you have to create certain spaces and mo and special moments um, where God's presence is, and most often God's presence is only communal. Um, now you're sounding a little bit like Mark George, this guy we had on. It <laughs> <laughs> says God's love is not what you think it is. Yeah. God takes right. a time out or a vacation. Yeah, he takes yeah. a vacation, which is uh, yeah. I think he had said uh, when when he was explaining this to you, he yeah, you were like, "That's not gonna, that's not gonna sell. People yeah. aren't gonna like that." And no. which which yeah, people it's in America not... they don't want to hear that. But but even though most people experience that, when you've had a terrible grief, let's say you are a person of sincere faith, and you've just been diagnosed with cancer, or your husband has died of cancer, or some terrible tragedy is you, and you do not feel the comfort of God with you, there is something, ironically, about being comforted by acknowledging at this moment the divine presence isn't with you. You know? Yeah. Can you go back um, and talk a little bit more about the difference between purity and was the other term you were using as impurity um, or moral? Yes. The the difference between like the collective um, purity and the personal purity, I guess, because I think um, in the past, my understanding of Judaism was really a, of the relationship between the Jewish people and God and kind of this back and forth about how the, um, the Jews were, you know, being not following the rules and being punished and, and God was leaving them Mm -hmm. and, and what the atonement period was to, to get God back in their lives. And I found it really interesting that you were talking about, what was considered what was considered i guess a sin mm-hmm. versus what was considered like a personal impurity yes, and how how those two things are different because i i see very clearly now what you're saying um but it, it's interesting to me that so much of what you think about or what i think about at least of the religion of judaism has to do with like this ritual and keeping kosher and that sort of thing but the relationship um, between Jews and 
God and the history of the development of the people actually has to do with this sinfulness for which they're being punished. Yes. A great question. Thanks, Heather. Um, the word impurity isn't typically used of, of individual sins. So the sin of adultery, right? There are lots of sins Judaism would recognize, just like Christianity would would recognize, right? Th- th- these things are, are sins. Um, the language of impurity from the purity-impurity model I was talking about tends to be, it, in the Torah, the language that's used of only a few particular sins, and they're always communal sins. So... So there are times where Israel as a people, so it doesn't matter. I'm sure there are different individuals who are good and others who are bad, but overall as a people, there's this, and at times the language is really brutal, like in Hosea, right? Where the people have betrayed God in horrible ways. And the temple gets destroyed. When you read Jeremiah, the Jews understand it to be their own fault, or at least the prophets are trying to convince the people that it's their own fault. Um, in a contemporary context, this would probably not be a good victimology, uh, you know, if you're a psychologist working with people. Uh, but what's interesting about prophetic literature in Judaism and the fact that that literature is preserved and what makes it stand out to me from other ancient forms of literature, other ancient literatures is it's a self-critique. I mean, how many culture, ancient cultures are there where there was a monarch or a dictator or whatever the case may be, and their own writings, the scribes who preserve it, preserve dissident voices. It's, uh, there's probably people who are, you know, scholars of Assyria and Sumeria who might be able to come up with some exceptions, but I don't know of any case where that's true. So it is true that, the relationship between Israel and God is a volatile one. And so when, in the case of the destruction of the temple, um, the only way for God to be reconciled to the people, according to prophets like Jeremiah, is that they had to be dispersed to go into, they don't deserve a temple and they can't even be in the land. That's how impure they are. And that's why God sends them into exile. So, so just forget the, the particular historical pieces of the Assyrians and Babylonians and their reasons. The theological understanding is they are so impure, time and a bath isn't going to fix the problem. That's what individuals do. So, so they, they get exiled. Um, at the same time, um, the covenant that God makes with Israel, as Israel and Jews understand it, is eternal. So even the worst sort of rebellion, God's punishment may be very severe, but at some point there's going to be a reconciliation. There can, there cannot be, because it, the covenant is considered to be a promise of God, um, and God's promises can't be broken. The analogy sometimes is used of a father and son. So sons may be really, really, really bad, like Ryan over here, you know, give his father horrible. a hard time. Yeah, horrible. And the father may exercise all sorts of discipline and may even go through times where um, he will not talk to his son anymore. Um, but that relationship, technically father and son, exists no matter what. So Israel understands itself to be God's people no matter what. So, in fact, the idea of the remnant becomes an interesting idea in in Christian theologies of salvation, that only a remnant will be saved and that sort of thing. Thank you, John Calvin. Yeah, I think it was John Calvin, who was a very good scholar of the Old Testament, but he he missed this very important point about the idea of the remnant. And that is, the remnant is this idea that God can always find God's way back to the people, or vice versa, because there's always a few people. There's always a few good people who maintain the connection and therefore will bring the whole people back. So in other words, the remnant isn't just an elect few 
who God favors forever and ever. The point of having a remnant, a few, is to recognize is those few could be the bridge to all of Israel and Israel to find its way back to God and God back to Israel. So it's, it's not a permanent state. It got theologized differently. And I should say, not just in Christians, there are extreme forms of Judaism in antiquity too that did come to understand the remnant as just, the remnant are just us few good people and the rest of Israel is so bad, God's just going to you know, open up the earth and swallow them up and that's going to be the end of them. No, see the way it's preached yeah. at Christian churches <laughs> is that you could be the one that breaks the covenant and pollutes the entire community if you sin. Uh, so wait, so there is an idea of pollution. I've wondered about this. Of the whole, So if one person in the community commits adultery, is the whole congregation responsible in some way? Depending on the pastor. Okay. I mean, so I have, I, there are cases where I've heard that preached. I mean, I'm not saying that's a standard doctrine, but definitely when maybe revivalists would use this technique more than normal preaching. But, you know, if you stray, you could bring other people with you. And if you break the covenant, then you could make everybody suffer. And it, I mean, it was very, very bad psychology. Um, but I, I definitely heard it preached multiple times okay. I, I would to like be, to add that, but, that yeah. not not all christian congregations are like that no. yeah. i feel like obviously that's very abusive and um the congregation that i was raised in would have that's never been that them. way yeah. right okay but let me to, to be fair because I, I don't want to make it sound like christians you know just have crazy judgmental theology and jews never did in judaism right, let's go back to the the religion of israel there is this sense that if one person is impure, it, it impurity is contagious. I should say certain kinds of impurity is contagious. But if one person for certain kinds of moral impurity sins, it is it transfers to the whole the whole community bears responsibility. Now I've thought about this a lot the theologically, because it seems so in, in, in the Torah itself, there's a mixed message that God holds you accountable, and in other places, particularly in the prophets, um, actually, I think it's even in Exodus. We, we should have Mark here just like as a check on my Hebrew Bible uh, knowledge, but um, God punishes people to the third and fourth generations. Right, yeah. God pun right? So, um, uh, but there's other prophetic literature that says, no, you are accountable for, for what you, you do. Um I've thought about this because because my students ask students who are studying to be pastors often when we're in these classes on the Bible and I'm talking about all these things that's historical and interesting and you know theoretical they're thinking okay we're going to read this passage in my congregation and what am I going to say and it, it so then I begin to reflect the, theologically and I think there are ways in our culture where we do understand, or maybe even should understand, that there should be collective responsibility for some people's individual sins. Let me let me give you an example. If um, a child or a wife, and let, let's take the interest, uh, uh, the example of a, an abused wife who kills her husband, so, um, and then is accused of murder, and let's even say it's first degree murder. She she planned the whole thing and everything. Um, my guess is any lawyer is going to argue for mitigating circumstances that her abuse um, caused her, that she, she's not in, in, inherently a murderer, right? That there was a particular set of circumstances that were totally unjust. And furthermore, no one else in the family took action. So right. there's other ways in which people who abuse drugs, who do things, you, you can understand, well, there's no institutional support. It's actually, this person may be standing trial for this, for his or her addiction and the, the theft they committed as a result, but aren't we partly responsible as a society for not providing institutions um, that would alleviate that addiction. So, so in other words, there are ways you could translate this into contemporary context that I think would be healthier theologically. Right. 
um, in which some yeah. people do bad things because as a society, we've created circumstances that enabled that uh, rather than discouraged it. I, I appreciate the precautionary practical implications here because if you think about it, whether whatever it's like a murder, which is like, of course, the worst thing we mm-hmm. can think of, mm-hmm. or somebody, somebody who has a gambling addiction or somebody who's cheating on their spouse, everything in between. You know, you have churches who, if somebody does this particular um, sin, and like it's like it's only about them, and like we're we're good, we're yes, clean. The opposite of what you're. But saying I remember right. when. So do you remember about twelve years ago when Tiger Woods? Oh yeah, had that yeah. Uh, ac- some kind of accident. His fall and, from oh, grace. Oh man, it was yeah. every, it was everything. Yeah. It was huge. So you know, Tiger is suddenly like it comes out that he was having sex with. All yeah. these prostitutes. He had a pornography addiction. Yeah, and I mean, things, it was right? it was incredibly intense, and America was going, "What the hell?" And I remember we we brought that up in our our congregation within just you know a small group of people, and the lead pastor at the time had said, "You know, like this is a great example of the fact that, like this kind of stuff should never happen here. Here's why: because people should know years ahead of time if it's going to lead up to that. Because if we're all really a community collectively, um, yeah, sure, these yeah. things can happen, but but if you're really friends with somebody, if you know somebody, if you're checking in on them and like, how's your family, how your kids, like you're going to know if that's going to go down. So it's, it's sad because there's the loneliness of the Tiger Woods situation, which is really just, you know, that's the, the scapegoat here. This, this is the American situation that we all have created this individualized sin, individualized individualized. hero. Like it's my righteousness. It's my sin. Like, no, it's, it, it should be ours. It should always be ours because when it becomes about Tiger, it's easy to play, we didn't yeah, do anything point, wrong. Right, right. It's all about Tiger. So, right. so I, I actually, the the preca- precautionary element of this, I appreciate, and just all the implications in between. So um, that's this is just a good reminder, I think, for not just religious people, but how about just communities who actually give a shit about each other? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Don't yeah. let Tiger Woods happen. Yeah. That's, that's the moral <laughs> of that story. Can we get to the oral Torah? <laughs> The oral Torah. <laughs> We've been talking yeah. around it and within it, which is it so and all that. important. Yeah. Which is the next most important thing after the written Torah in Judaism. So we right? have it's it's called the Mishnah, right? Which well, is the, it's not just the Mishnah. And then there's the Talmud, the Talmud, and yeah. responsa for everything after. Can, the Talmud. can you do some defining of terms for those who are listening for the first time? Sure. So the Mishnah is a collection of teachings of basically the first couple generations of. Rabbis and the Pharisees. So Hillel, a lot of people will know Hillel after Akiva might be but the most But not Shammai, famous. poor guy. Not Shammai, because you're not supposed to follow the house of Shammai. You know, I was trying to think in my memory, there's one exception to that rule, but I couldn't remember what it was. And I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't bother to look it up. But in any case, um, so the Mishnah is a, uh, is a, is a book. You can go buy it or check it out of the library and it is divided into kind of six parts, and within each part are several tractates. Um, it can be kind of hard to read if you're not familiar with how Jewish, how rabbinic literature works, but essentially it is considered oral Torah because it deals with something we call halacha, which is just the word that comes to mean Jewish law in practice. So the fundamental idea is, this goes back to what you heard when you visited the Chabad house, that um, to be faithful to God, to worship God, means to live Torah, to embody Torah, to live in accordance with Torah. That is the will of God. So, um, So the Mishnah contains often debates about how to do this or that. Uh, I think I told the story at our group of uh, it, it, when we met on Thursday of uh, it, 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 the first tractate is called Berechot, Blessings. And if it's not the first story, it comes really early on, a debate about when exactly you say the Shema and how you say the Shema, because Deuteronomy says when you lie down and when you rise up. And the rabbis debate, does that mean whenever you lie down, no matter what time of day, does that mean, is that, is that the words for nighttime? Is that the word for, you know, so they have all kinds of debates with the purpose, the intent of figuring out how we're supposed to live in accordance with the Torah. So 
So that's so the Mishnah is this set of rabbinic discussions, most of which have a majority and a minority position preserved. Uh, okay, so that's the Mishnah, usually dated to around 200 CE, so 170 years after Jesus, but it, it's containing all this other stuff. And by codified, I don't mean written down, it's still oral. But it's under people have it memorized. But it's memorized. around campfires. I mean, this yeah. is this is well, like that's true. If, if Grandpa starts telling the wrong story, you're like, no, no, sorry, yeah, this is right. not how it goes down. And generations of rabbis l- later, people gave them names. So this first generation of rabbis is called the Tanaim, which means the repeaters. Meaning, their job was to memorize all this, all this uh, early oral Torah to be sure that future generations, so some people are better at this than others, future generations. So when the rabbis later, now let's take their year 300 or 400, are sitting around their classroom debating something, and we'll get to the Talmud here in a minute, just be patient. They're debating something. They could point to someone in the room, Atana, and say, what's Rabbi Akiva's teaching on this? And then that person's job is to repeat all that's preserved in the oral Torah that Rabbi Akiva said pertinent to whatever the issue is on the table. So, so the Mishnah is the first place we get sort of a codified collection so it becomes manageable in a certain way that people can remember it. Um, then what happens is something called the Talmud and subsequent generations of rabbis do the same thing, essentially, that was done in the Mishnah, only the Talmud is organized around the Mishnah. So it can, it's often described as a kind of commentary on the Mishnah. So in, in fact, it's too bad we can't have any visual cues here, but um, Google a uh, page of Talmud so you can see what it looks like. And what will happen is a little, a little piece of, Mish, of the Mishnah will be at the center of the page. And then all... The, um, all this other Hebrew writing will be around it. And it's discussion, interacting, justifying, arguing with whatever this little piece of Mishnah is. The word Mishnah, um, just as a little footnote here, it's a little confusing. There are individual Mishnahot. So an, an individual sort of ruling is called a Mishnah. And then the collection of all these things up to the year 200 is called the Mishnah. So the Talmud is divided into individual Mishnahs that there's all this commentary on. And part of the what the Talmud does is connect the Mishnah more explicitly with the Torah. Because the Mishnah, well, of course it makes reference to the Torah. I just gave the example of how to say the Shema when you lie down, when you rise up. But in many cases, the rabbi is of the Mishnah assume knowledge of the Torah. So they just jump in. Do we do this or do we, and it's assumed. So, so in the case of the Talmud, they do more exegesis of the Torah and then bring that to bear on whatever the rabbis of the Mishnah say, and then try to come out with some recommended halacha, how you live out any particular, any particular thing. And oral Torahs, understood to be unfolding with time. It, th- this is, to say it well, is to say there are two aspects of the oral Torah that are held in tension, or you could see it as a complete contradiction. On the one hand, all of the oral Torah is revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. He just doesn't know what it means. Tell so the story, right, that, that Moses is not a very good student. He has to spend 40 days on Mount Sinai learning the Torah. He's a very poor student. That's why it takes 40 days. And God tries to teach him Torah. And to teach him Torah means the oral Torah. He's explaining the Torah because Moses has questions explaining the Torah. Only Moses doesn't understand it very well. And Moses, um, and God says, look, even though you don't understand it, it's okay. I'm telling you it all. And it will be revealed in time. In fact, there's this guy named Rabbi Akiva way smarter than you, and he'll explain it to everybody else. To which Moses says, why not just give the Torah to Rabbi Akiva? And um, 
you know, God gives God's usual answer. You don't know my mysterious ways, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Moses says to God, look, you're not doing a very good job explaining the oral Torah to me. So how about Rabbi Akiva? Uh, could I could I have exposure to Rabbi Akiva? And so God blasts Moses to the future to listen to Rabbi Akiva explaining the oral Torah, right? Um, which doesn't help. Moses is too... Uh, let's just say sluggish in his learning to get it all. And in any case, so the idea is the oral Torah is all revealed to Moses, even if he doesn't understand it at the beginning of time, it's sort of embedded in the written Torah. Some believe the little seraphs of, on the letters of a written Torah have a kind of code that contains the oral Torah, but the oral Torah is supposed to be oral. It's okay. So and then it's passed down through all these generations and the Mishnah and the Talmud are attempts to um, codify all this oral Torah. But because in principle, the oral Torah is ongoing as needed. So uh, I, I gave this example of, um, it, it particularly is an issue when there are new technological inventions. So when the electric light bulb is invented, uh, uh, rabbis wanted to know if that was equivalent, turning on a light, flipping a switch is equivalent um, to a spark because in the Torah, it says that you should kindle a flame on the Sabbath, which means you can't start a fire. So they decide, they communicate with Thomas Edison about how a light bulb works. He explains, they decide it is analogous to uh, kindling a flame and so the ruling is you should not uh, use electricity on the Sabbath. Um, initiate any electric activity on the Sabbath. Okay, So that's a form of oral Torah. There's no electricity in the age of the Mishnah or Maimonides or any other time. Um, but that would be considered part of oral Torah. Now, does that ever get written down yes like in the talmud but a modern talmud right well nothing ever gets added so now the talmud is the talmud so okay. that becomes no a, a responsa it, it becomes responsa okay. and there are collections of these right so and and there does also become kind of just standard practice because usually if nothing new arises you just keep doing whatever you might not know as if you're raised as an orthodox young woman or boy in an orthodox synagogue that you're not supposed to turn on and off the lights on Shabbat, you might never ask, why do we turn, why can't we use lights? You just know, we just, we don't turn on the lights on Sabbath, but there's actually, so that's just what's commentary done, right? On it's commentary just, on the written. Yeah, and it's just, this is what Jews yep. do. And but there was a reason at some point that someone made um, a ruling, and and when there's a new, you know, often something new, something has to change to raise the question, like cell phones. So, yeah, like or LED. I mentioned that conservative Jews now say it's okay to use electricity. I don't know if that's just or turning on and off lights. I don't know if that's just a liberalizing thing or if it's LED or new technologies where it's technically not as. I haven't looked uh -huh. at. Up, I, I don't actually know. So uh, uh, on this podcast, I'm absolved of all uh, in, mistakes <laughs> I make in this. But it, but it is is true that it's okay to turn on and off lights now for conser not for Orthodox, but for conservative Jews. And I suspect it has something to do with technological changes. Is there responsa for the yes. different denominations or different Orthodox? At this point, yeah, right. Form. Some some people wouldn't listen to other people now. At, at one point, Judaism is kind of just Judaism, right? Jews are just, there's not a lot of division, it, kind of like the Catholic Church. If you're Jewish, you behave this way. Um, and my guess is there were always some Jews who were more observant than, I. you know, I kind of believe people aren't all that different hundreds of years ago than they well, are This now. goes back to Hallel and Shammai who differed then yeah, certainly. Yeah, right. I mean, they yeah, differed, they're... right, right. And by the way, and later tradition always says, um, even if we don't follow the school of Shammai, he was, a, he was devout and serious and a great, and, and should his um, 
so his judgments are often preserved because so his personhood, his opinions, all that is still a valued, part of the right, Torah, right, the oral Torah. Right, right. He was just, and they think, kind of wrong most of the time. But his intentions were good. Let, let, me, let me tell you a story. You mentioned Steve Booth earlier here. I can't remember if yeah, we Stephen mentioned Booth it on. Steve Booth He was a part of our, our mystical podcast, All in Wonder, we did many moons ago. Okay. And um, you've talked about him involved with his group, right? And he's great. He was he was the rabbi. When I joined my synagogue, B'nai Chavurah, he was the rabbi at the time. I have great respect for him. He's a wonderful rabbi. And um, shortly after I joined that synagogue, so I'm new to the community, there was a debate going on about whether our kitchen in the synagogue, so we have a little kitchen like most do to serve food, right, for social, little social events. We have a kitchen, whether it was kosher enough. <laughs> enough. Enough, because there's degrees of kosherness, <laughs> of kashrut. Um, so now Reconstructionist Jews are pretty flexible in their observance of Jewish law. So we didn't... Uh, pork was not allowed to be served, for example. There was no question about that. But there are strict laws, technically, for Orthodox Jews about keep uh, using um, two sets of dishes, one set for dairy, one set for meat. You even need two dishwashers, which we did not have. Um, there were various things. So the debate was that some people, even if they weren't, they themselves were not really that observant when it came to kashrut, they thought... Well, whenever we have bar and bat mitzvahs here, we want to be fully welcoming to Orthodox Jews. So our kitchen should be kosher enough, uh, as kosher, so that any Jew would feel comfortable eating the food here. It was a hospitality issue. Okay, it it wasn't if there were any Jews who were really that kosher in our synagogue. I didn't hear about them. It was a hospitality. The ethic of hospitality was a debate. So here's what. Rabbi Steve decided to do. He said, here's how we're going to settle this. We're going to spend one year studying the Mishnah and the Talmud. And then, so we're going to de debate, we're going to read the Torah and debate the oral Torah on this issue. And then we will have a vote and we will make a decision for our community. So this is going on basically at the start of my joining the synagogue. And when I join, I meet the rabbi and I tell him I'm an academic and all that stuff. And so I say to him, kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, where do you want this to come out? Like, okay, you're going to go through this charade of a year of, you know, but where, where do you want this to come out? He's like, oh, I don't, I really don't care. He's like, I really don't care. What I really care about though, and to me what Judaism is, is the process of oral Torah that we're going to, it's. People are going to study their sources. They're going to have a discussion among themselves as well as in dialogue with people of former generations in light of our current circumstances. And then, then we'll have followed the process of Judaism, even if our kitchen turns out to be way less kosher than some people like, we'll have been Jewish by following the same process that an Orthodox community would follow. Which I thought was absolutely awesome. beautiful. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. Yeah, I yeah. dig that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, when we were at the pub, you you had a quote, and I'll let you tell us who said it because I can't remember, um, which was, I think, uh, Judaism is the religion of the deed and Christianity is the religion of the creed. creed. Yeah. And um, I've been thinking about that since you said it. And um, I, I think it's really interesting because – um, like on one hand you have like this whole huge history, which, um, like when I look at it that way, like it, it really seems like it's, um, like this theology and it's all about like the big ideas and the relationship versus, um, people who consider themselves observant Jews and practice, you know, the, the kosher laws and that sort of thing. And then on the other side of it, um, you know, because I'm living in a Western society mm -hmm. and and mostly dominated by Christianity or secularism, um, like many, many, almost all of the people that I know who are Jewish basically are non-observant. Yeah. Yet, if you push them to a place that becomes important, like a wedding or um, 
what religion their children will be raised, it becomes important to them. And I just think that there, it's like this very interesting like dichotomy. And I wondered if yeah. you could just kind of talk about that a little bit, um, especially, I guess, the, the cultural relationship of, of, of Jews and like the, the obvious tragic history um, versus the religion of Judaism and the practice of, of, of people who consider themselves observant. You and Ryan always ask these complicated questions. So, uh, by the way, I just want to say on this podcast, it's not my fault when I go off on these tangents because they ask these complicated questions. That's why we so, end up having yeah. 100 questions versus... Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, so, I was quoting a professor of mine um, when he said, uh, and he was trying to call attention to this stereotype. And I think it is a stereotype, but it does also capture something essential about Judaism and Christianity. Judaism is the religion of, you know, deed and Christianity of creed, is that nobody ever killed anybody, excommunicated anybody over um, exactly the nature of God, right? There's no, there's no definition. In fact, if so it's often, I, I hear Christians say, well, you have one creed, you have the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Elheinu, Adonai, Hakkah. The Shema, the first word of that is, listen up, Israel. It's not even a prayer. It's not even yeah. addressed to God. It's not a creed. It's like a, it's a, yeah, you know, the Lord our God is the, and there's different ways to translate it. The Lord is one, or just this God alone is our God, or whatever. But it's not even, it's, it's, and it doesn't start with, we believe that. Mm -hmm. We affirm that. Think of the Apostles' Creed, or Westminster Creed, or all these kinds of other things that start with an affirmation of what you believe. So Judaism doesn't have any of those. There's no creedal test. Um, but there are certain halakha that if you deviated seriously from that, say in the medieval, when everybody um, did not work on the Sabbath. So I can imagine if you're in some European village and you decide to work on the Sabbath, boy, you would really be ostracized. I mean, I'm not sure that would be an issue. Okay. So now your question about modern Jews, th this is, it's, it's so interesting because most American Jews are not, uh, myself included, are not observant, certainly by any either Torah or rabbinic standard. And it's, so I'm selectively observant about certain things, right? So if we were going to exclusively define Jewish identity on the basis of observance, most American Jews would probably fail the test, right? They would fail the test. So here's the other thing about Judaism, and it is, what do I want to say? What Chabad is predicated on, by the way. Um, that Judaism, this, this is somewhat complicated in the modern world, but... Judaism, for most of history, has been a conglomeration of different of what we would identify as different types of identity. So we distinguish quite clearly between uh, your political or your ethnic identity, cr Christians do, and your religious identity. So you can be from anywhere in the world, or you know, your parents could have been Buddhist. If you convert, you know. But to Christianity, you're a Christian. So Judaism understands itself, Jews, often as an ethnicity and a kind of, or at least a participant in a story, the story of a particular people within history. So as one friend of mine who's a close friend, who's an Orthodox Jew who converted to Judaism, I knew her for a long time before I even knew she converted to Judaism, that she said to me once um, that when you convert to Judaism, you're not only adopting a new religion, you get a new set of ancestors. You're of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're part of that lineage, literally. So a lot of Jews who never go to synagogue or don't observe anything or whatever understand themselves as, as part of this story 
um, whether or not they ever observe, lit a candle on Friday night or anything like that. So I have wondered if there isn't an idea emerging in American society of something I've, I didn't invent this term, others did, the, of a cultural Christian, where Christ, non-observant Christians, we might call them, but who were ra- who sort of just know they're part of that lineage, just come from that, their parents were, their grandparents were, their, their you know, their historical genealogical tradition is steeped in that, but they don't go to church and they do these things. That might be an, an analogy. I think modern American Jews will sometimes, if you ask someone, are you Jewish, and, and in fact they are, and they're, let's say they're non-observant, they will often answer the question this way. Well, I'm not religiously Jewish, but I'm culturally, culturally Jewish, Jewish or ethnic. I, so I think, again, that's one of those borrowed things, I think, from Christianity where in modernity now we live in a world in which those things can be distinguished. But in antiquity, it wasn't even political identity was sort of wrapped up in, in Jewishness. <laughs> So I don't know if that exactly answers your question, um, but hopefully it comes close. And your point about having children, isn't that also too, true of Christians? Is that true? Yes. That often, you know, those of us who are sort of like floating along, we don't, you know, we were raised something and we don't really care. And then we get married and if we have children and suddenly we care, which is an interesting thing. We want to pass something down. I don't know if sociologists and whatnot have written about this. This is not my area, but it is interesting that it suddenly can become very important. Well, it's interesting when you talk about cultural Christians, because that has, I would almost say there's like different, we would identify each other differently. So there are people that would say that Ryan and I are kind of culturally Christian because we don't practice the way that we used to. Mm -hmm. And we still we'll wear that label, but we're not doing all of the things that we were raised to do. But then I would look at, I would look at kind of the American Christian in a survey and say, well, that's someone that's culturally Christian Uh, because they're claiming Christianity, but they don't, they have never practiced and they don't do any of the things, but they'll tell you they believe in Jesus and God and creation. Yeah. So clearly they're Christian, right? Yeah. God and capitalism. Come on. Yeah. But then in my tradition, if you're a second or third or fourth generation Nazarene, there was a... There were just assumptions that came with that, that yeah. you were like more Nazarene. Oh, and, really? You know, or that you, you, you have this legacy and you have these obedient um, ancestors that answered the call and were faithful. So it's really funny that it can like, d- depending on what lens you're looking through, that cultural Christianity can look completely different. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And again, in American society, I think there's cross-fertilization or cross-influence, you know, going on. There's a lot of things that Jews, they don't realize it, that they have adopted from Christianity. Um, Seriously, I don't think they teach pastoral caring seminaries to like the 1960s or something like that. They're really kind of slow to figure out your bedside manner when someone's at their death might be important (laughs) as the rabbi of a congregation. Um, But yeah. So I, I think through most of history, your cultural, ethnic and religious identity are really tied up together. And we now have these ways of distinguishing, Mm -hmm. right? You, you can be, um, a member of the Democratic Party, uh, an Orthodox Jew. You can even be an evangelical Christian, as I mean. You, you can be politically liberal, an evangelical Christian who's from pretty much anywhere, right? Yeah. And it might have a an ethnic. You eat foods that are from your family ate. If you're from Ghana or you're from wherever you're from, you eat the foods from there. What's interesting is Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, sort of Europe-based Jews and Sephardic Jews from North Africa um, and the Middle East 
have their own sets of foods. But interestingly, so they won't identify as, my ethnicity is really Tunisian. My, my ethnicity is Sephardic Judaism. My, in, in other words, I could say, well, my family was from Poland, but I don't ever say that. I say, you know, unless we get into a deep conversation about it, I say, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. I'm a Jew. That's my ethnicity. In fact, I hate the forms that we fill out on the census because I feel like none of the categories actually work. So I often, in protest, just just check other because mm-hmm. it's like white, um, uh, non-white, Hispanic, black. You know, and I often wonder: are these ethnicities, or are these races, mm-hmm. or are these? And, and exactly why do they need to know this anyway? And um, that sort of stuff. But I just think it is complicated. It is complicated for Jews. So Shema, let's go back there. Shema, Shema is to hear, listen, uh-huh. understand, obey. Right. Shema Yisrael, Adonai mm-hmm. Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. So if the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then these three things, heart, soul, and strength, uh, Shema, Hallel, debate about this. Others do as well. Uh-huh. Can you break huh. down? So I have two questions. Can you break down the um, the commentary on heart, soul, and strength? Because Christians have always talked about this. Oh, really? So this is, oh, yeah. Yo, it's a big thing. What? Really? Because Jesus says, I didn't know that. Jesus says that Shema Yisrael. Yeah, this is yes, like the first, first commandment. commandment. Right. But then what most Christians don't understand is that you know Hallel already said that the second commandment yes, is yes, to you know, right. love your neighbor as, as yourself. yourself. Right. So that's my second question: Is the Leviticus was it nineteen three mm-hmm. or is it where is it? Am I getting that wrong? We're not for to, the, to love oh, your love neighbor your, yes, as yourself. Yes, it is. It is nineteen three. Very good. So then, uh, to love your neighbor as yourself, who is your neighbor? So first off, yes. what does it mean to love Which, God right. with all of your right. heart, soul, strength? Right. And then, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself based on all this commentary? And then the commentary on the commentary. This is a loaded question. Very loaded question. But I feel like it's 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 foundational both to Judaism and Christianity. It is. It is. And I'm not an expert. So you're making me realize the commentary on that to study through time would be really interesting. Okay. But the rabbis, anytime anything is perceived as there, there can be no superfluity. So there must be three things that God is trying to teach you (laughs) when he says heart, soul, and strength. There must be, okay. That it's not just, in other words, there's a way in which a lot of times we do that. Any rhetorician would know you do things for emphasis. You, you make repetition. You say something and more, a poet says, right. For the rabbis, everything has semantic value. It refers to something else. So, um, I don't know. Uh, part of my answer to your question is, I don't know. I don't know how they define all these. I haven't read about them. I find it really, I, I want to turn the tables on you and ask what Christians have said about this. All um, kinds of things. We tend to have, in my own, just so now, not talking as a scholar, but talking as my own Hebrew school tradition, the emphasis was on God is one, um, and not how you love uh, uh, how you love God. But so the the echad the, part, the, the echad part was. Critical. And so we've we've heard two different translations in our at least our Christian yes, Bible. That's right. Is one, one and also is alone. alone. Yes. Yes. Uh, is I that, mentioned is that. that. The, is that the same? Both of those yeah. are legitimate translations. Yeah. The trouble with translation is if you're going to make a coherent sentence in your in your it, translation, uh, translators talk about source languages and target languages. So if you're translating from the Hebrew into the English, Hebrew is the source language and English is the target language. Is you have to pick the words you're going to use. So on the one hand, I'm often criticizing translations. You are too. But on the other hand, if you're going to write a coherent English sentence, you can't have parentheses. This could mean 17 things. And then, move. I mean, it becomes unreadable, right? So the trouble is with every translation, every word, even if it's a good equivalent. So like the word heart, it's a good equivalent. Word soul really bad. It's translating nefesh, really bad. There's no such thing. There's, there's really no idea of a soul in biblical. We should, we should have had you, we did it. We did a whole thing on, on nefesh on this. Was, was, um, 
Rabbi Steve here. No, no, I'd this, like to this is a, a just a, a regular week without a speaker. So, oh, without okay. Yeah. So I wrote the content, so you can blame me for any if you can go back and listen to it. Well, I, no, and I think Naomi it's very Levy. different. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's yeah, different. I did, I did go to to yes, she is a rabbi. She so is. there you go. Okay. So I I want to say that again, ancient biblical Hebrew. Then different. The rabbis do develop a notion of soul under the influence of Greek philosophy, and so do Christians. But in ancient Hebrew, there is no way. This is important. If I've never said it before in any previous con- uh, podcast, this is an important point. Everybody should learn right now. Pay attention. Um, there is no word in biblical Hebrew for a human, a human living body apart from who they are in essence. So there's a word for a corpse, but there's no word. So your nefesh is your whole person. It's Ryan. Your Ryan is your nefesh. nefesh, right? You are a nefesh. So, um, so there's a way in which you could say the theological anthropology of Israel, as represented by the Hebrew Bible, is that a person is is their is is whole. There's only they're not parts to it. So so once you so once you die, once you die, there's a body left. Um, so there's a word for that, but there's there's no way to talk about a living person without that. Now later, so I'm not going to remember the words. The rabbis do begin to get a more complex theological anthropology, and already you see it in Paul. He can um, the apostle Paul can can talk about your. Um, it's actually the word psychikos. Your um, actually Paul talks about. Three parts: your pneumaticos, your spiritual self. For Paul, Plato has three parts: your mind, your yeah. soul, and you your say body. Su- suke is mind, isn't it? Yeah. No. No. Suke is the closest thing we get so, to soul. It's where we get the word psychology, by the way. Okay. So suke is more fleshly, if I can put it that way. Again, this is where translation is hard. Um, is more um, is yourself. But a more earthbound self. So, by the way, we're talking Greek now, not and now Hebrew. we're talking Greek, right? Okay. So, Paul, for those of you who might know, it's Greek know to your everybody Bible. else out there. Yeah. <laughs> go, go ahead. Go You're, ahead. Um, so, um, do you guys remember? So, First Corinthians fifteen is all about resurrection. You remember that the Corinthians write Paul like, how do you, how do you have resurrection was a strange idea to people who who grow up with a Greek mindset, not a Jewish mindset, because, because a body isn't something you want to have with you in eternal life. <laughs> it's like, so any, because anything material is seen to be part of this world and subject to death and corruption. So that's the, Gre- the Greeks are totally infiltrating this right now. Yeah. This is, yeah. And, and, but, but the Greeks, Christianity, Judaism, Greek culture and thought, and who knows why just, and, it, it, I'm including Islam here, pervades, pervades all three religions. So, so the Corinthians write Paul, we don't know exactly what they wrote him, but it seems to be that they're bothered by the fact, they don't dispute that you have life after death, but they're bothered by the fact that, wait, what? Your body gets, res- so I'm going to have this body, and I'm with that. I mean, I don't want this body. I want the body of when I was 25. I want, I want yeah. the glorified body. Yeah, I want. I want. Yeah, I want the body <laughs> I thought was the best body of the options I had. You know. So, what body? And so Paul writes this response in which he differentiates different kinds of bodies, and he says that in this life we may have a psychikos body which actually means a soul body, if you were to use common English translation. You want a pneumaticos body, which is a spiritual body, not subject to corruption. So the word soul is being more associated with your flesh body, and your spirit body is something that can transcend this. Right, that your body is transformed in resurrection. That that's his point. So he thinks, you know, to the Corinthians, you don't need to worry about this. You don't have exactly the same body you've got now. It's a different kind of body. So, um, 
my my point is that in ancient in in Israelite religion in Hebrew ancient Hebrew literature the word nefesh and this is true of Jewish translations English translations they always translate soul because we don't have a good equivalent because we also understand ourselves as in multiple parts even if you're even so Descartes right thinks who doesn't talk about so much as a soul but he talks about a mind and a body this mind body dualism becomes a major philosophical problem where is my mind. Like if it's not, I mean, now cognitive scientists are trying to say your mind is your brain, but, but even there, it's kind of, it's kind of hard. We all have pretty much the same brain, but we don't all have the same personality. We're all unique. So in my mind, that's still a scientific problem. It's not well answered, but it's a theological problem as well. So in ancient Hebrew, you're, you're a person. It's not a great word in English, but it's the best equivalent I can think of that a nefesh is an individual or a person that makes them the individual person. Once life has left them, they don't breathe, they don't live anymore. They're just a human body, in which case they're like every other just dead body. But later... um, the theological anthropology of both Christianity and Judaism gets more complicated, but it is the inheritance of Greek philosophy that divided what a human being is composed of um, as a more complex unit. Um, it's either it's either dualistic or or it, it's sort of in triplicate. So sometimes it's just soul and body. Sometimes it's mind, soul, body. Sometimes spirit, soul, body. Um, What we've mostly inherited in our modern world is what Descartes said. The mind and the body are there. Your mind is encased in your body in the case of a human person, but it's a completely different, it's not physical. It's not physical. In fact, Descartes said you couldn't study it. Um, it's not really even part of the natural world. That's another conversation. So what, what I love about this is that I, what I feel like I, I'm asking a very simple yet loaded question, and I have no idea where it's going to go, and it goes to places where I'm like, that's cool, that's fun, that's That's a nice way of saying that's, you really didn't answer my question, no, it's Pam. Not, yeah. I, no, it's not at all. Actually, I, I appreciate it. I'm like, I learned more with, uh, I, I didn't know that that question would lead us there. So yeah. no, thank you. So heart, soul, and strength. Yeah, and so I don't know all the commentary. Part of the way of all saying that was I didn't know the answer (laughs) to your main question. You took on a rabbinical rabbit trail. But but I know (laughs) that they, I'm sure, I'm confident that there must be lengthy discussions about what each of those terms is about. But but ultimately, like if it it is about to to love God with the entirety of one's being, okay, all all of oneself. Which I think what the biblical passage means. When you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, all that. That's right. And, and then, so ultimately, if, if Hillel then says, Rabbi Hillel says, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, and all of Judaism says, yes, that's, that's it, who is your neighbor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's, who's your neighbor becomes, in Judaism? Right. So this is a much bigger question. Well, I don't know if it's taken up in, by Christian scholars. Oh, yes. But, but mostly— This it, is where the Good Samaritan comes yeah, in. Uh, exactly, yeah. it does. But So later Christian commentators, I do know this, when they critique— Jewish readings of Leviticus 19, that, Jew, that Jews only understand their neighbor as other Jews. They don't recognize other human beings as human, right? And there are rabbinic texts that say something like that. Just like say there are main, Christian texts that say the yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah there are sure. rabbinic texts that say that. So the, the, the nice thing, so I don't have all that. What I needed is a, a handy electronic Talmud to answer all your questions, Ryan. Um, uh, I is, keep them open-ended for a reason. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but these I'm, are really I'm, good I'm, questions. You made me um, uh, become curious about them again and need to look them up. So you, so, so, um, so essentially, who is my neighbor? Jesus already in the New Testament is critiquing others for how they answer that question, right? That a Samaritan technically isn't your neighbor. I'm not sure 
I don't recall if Hillel in particular, who says that, takes up the question or whether it's the next generation of Pharisees who build on Hillel and ask that question. Which if it's the same family, it's all the same anyway. Yeah. Well, that's true too. <laughs> that's true too. So um, it it's... I do know that in the medieval period, for convenience sake in a lot of ways, neither Christians nor Jews will recognize the other as their neighbor. Whatever they think about Hindus and Muslims, I don't know. So, for example, both Jews and Christians in the medieval period have a law against usury, a law against lending money at interest. So... I can't, uh, if Heather and I here are both Jewish and she needs a loan for something, I can't, I can't loan her money and ask her to pay me back with interest a, a year later. That's against my religion. But if Janelle over there, who, uh, who's uh, a, a Wesleyan <laughs> something or other, um, Nazarene, I can charge her interest because she is not my neighbor. So what happens is one reason Jews become associated with banking and money lending is because Christian monarchs of the medieval period often need, um, they want to make capital investments in their town to impress their, their charges. And who do they borrow money from? They can only borrow money from non-Christians. There are no Christian banks. So they borrow money from Jews. Okay, so and Jews also can't own land, and they can't—they're—they're they're barred from a lot of professions. But the one use they have is because the church says you can't borrow or loan money at interest from another Christian. But a Jew is not your neighbor. This is <laughs> so great you can business. borrow money at interest. Wow. Yeah. So. Um, and, and Jews so, then so have the, something similar. So the, the, na the neighbor question then is, it's an evolving question, yeah? Mm -hmm. Well, and it has yeah. nothing to do yeah. with what we've heard sermons on. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Well, and is the neighbor, I'd love to know what you've had. So if your neighbor, uh, if you're a tourist in, I don't know, Turkey, and your neighbor is uh, a member of ISIS, um, what would your, can, can you help your neighbor in that case? Yes, I mean, the yeah. way I was raised, your neighbor is everyone. Okay. So it's a theoretical question. Is there any boundary to it? From the way I was raised in a very socially progressive, like one of the very first reconciling congregations, oh. no. Okay. There's no boundary. Okay. Well, we we grew up differently over yeah. here on the on the other side of the table. Well, I, so mine's <laughs> complicated because Nazarene's were founded when Phineas Brzee crossed the railroad tracks in LA to reach people that the United Methodists wouldn't reach. And so there is this very historical statement about needing to reach everyone as our neighbor, how that played out over time. Um, I'm skeptical. Right. And there are rabbinic, so I, I'm not going to be able to tell a good a good story of them, but I do remember there are stories in the Talmud about whether you can violate the laws of Shabbat to save the life of a non-Jew. Mm -hmm. So there, it's it's assumed you can violate any law of the Torah, any law, if you're trying to save a human life. Um, and that would be. And, a, but a, the question does come up: Can you violate any law of the Torah to save the life of a non-Jew? So it's a it's debated, and I don't have at my fingertips where where the discussion goes. Yeah, so I'm sorry, I, I, I'd be curious. I mean, in the yeah, first second too. century, or so yeah. Romans, for instance, or Samaritans, or you know, any, right. anybody like that. Right. There's the story. I think it's in Kings somewhere about the leper colony that's outside the city. Yeah. Like yeah. that is really has a lot to say to how we treat our neighbor, but those would have been considered not neighbor, not neighbors, right? From the Jewish perspective, if they were separated out. I don't know. See, see, now we're talking about rabbinic law. This is where the oral Torah is going to influence. Oh, okay. Yeah. Going to be different than what, what in, in Kings itself, they might've been thinking. Right. I can't remember the story to be perfectly honest, Janelle. Um, so I don't know. I do remember a leper colony. I remember something. I actually 
Well, and I was think it was in the books of it's been a long Samuel, time since I've but, heard it, but they, they go, I think they go to the gate and someone sends them out food or something like that. And that's allowed, but I don't remember if it's in the context of Judaism or something else, but, but it was very, it's, but, but it's there. Like it's, it's safe. Yeah. They saved the story. So why did they save that story? Yeah. Is, is there a, a word or a phrase where if you, you, you break a part of the Torah in order to love one's neighbor the way that God would love you and, and love the world around you? Is, what, what's the word for that? I don't know if there is one word. Uh, the short answer is I don't know. But, it's a, don't know. but, it, but it, it is a common practice. It's so, part of the response. Yes, yeah. Yes. So in, in general, and my this is where, you know, Rabbi... Um, Uth Nadav or Rabbi Feld would be useful to have here because they would know it better than I. But um, my guess is certainly for most modern Jews, they would follow to save a life. One can break any law of the Torah, period. Um, but I, I, I don't know that for sure, and I can't point you to where in the Talmud it's discussed. 